Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Lauren Lando joins us on this week's show. Yes, it's true that he's coached over 70 NFL All-Pros and at least 20 first-round draft picks. However, Lando has yet to rest on his laurels as he continues to educate through his board roles at Metro State, Satenta College, and Elite Sports University. Lando is also responsible for the Return to Performance program at Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Denver, where getting athletes back on their two feet after suffering devastating lower extremity injuries is his jam. But here's why we like the guy. His coaching style and ethos is centered around mastering the basics, not bullshit or overly sexy gimmicks. He also believes building a rapport with athletes starts with a candid conversation. His expertise comes at the cost of dedication and the athlete's openness to being coached. This episode is dense with coaching takeaways, drills, and new ways of looking at programming for weekend warriors through elite performers. For a guy with this level of success, you'd imagine a comparable-sized ego, but that is certainly not the case. As Lando says, experience is just the byproduct of failing a lot and being able to say, I don't know. He's now focusing his efforts on Landau Performance, his training facility in Colorado. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a very special announcement coming out of Power Athlete HQ. This is episode 211. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? This is Luke in Austin. Tex in Austin. Ooh, Tex, you know, Tex has to get rid of his Austin or his Tex nickname, I think. I think we got to start calling you McQuilkin. Mac. Coach, no, Coach Mac. Irrelevant. Hey. Enough about us because if you're one of those poor saps who subscri- actually subscribe to this shit, uh, you just listened to episode 209. Is that, or no, they're going to have one in between. Yeah. They recently listened to 209, which is a three hour story about texting myself so you don't want to hear about us anymore but if you do well maybe we just ditch our guest here and we just talk about ourselves again or we talk (laughs) to lauren about ourselves that's right people we have lauren landau on the line (laughs) he's our guest of honor and uh i promise we you know john is not with us he's alive but he's not with us physically so uh you won't get to hear about his 10 nfl or 100 career 10 year nfl 10 playoff appearances 10 playoff appearances 100 career starts you know, on and on, well-born stories. We get Lauren Landau stories. And if you don't know who Lauren Landau is, he runs uh, Landau Performance out of Colorado. And from his bio, here's what I've learned. Thousands of athletes Lauren has worked with, 700 pros, 70 all pros, and 21st round draft picks, and probably increasing year after year. Am I right, Lauren? Yeah, you know, those first round picks are are few and far between sometimes. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we just had another one this year with uh, Christian McCaffrey, so we we can add to the total. Congratulations! Check that twenty-one. Uh, yeah. But people, what that what does that mean to you? It means that this man is well traveled, has experience, and uh, you know, uh, for our listeners, Lauren, we kind of talked about it before the show. Basically, you're preaching to very good-looking individuals, um, very smart. They're better. They're better looking than Tex and I. And uh, oh, I thought you were talking about us. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we have gym owners. We have strength and conditioning coaches. We got guys out of their gym, you know, and they're just they geek out on this stuff. So we're cool. excited to get going here. Um, but what have I missed out on? I know this is. We kind of want to hear about the journey. Um, you know, a lot of maybe your a lot of your interviews are enamored about kind of the first round draft pick and the process there. But truth be told, and not to d- discredit the work you do there. Um, you know, we always are more impressed by giving the kid who never had a shot a shot, taking the genetic trash can and putting him on a squad. That's yeah. where I think you're really empowering people. Um, and again, not to discredit the, the, the top end athletes, but 
uh, that's kind of where my, my selfish folks can be during this conversation. But before we even get there, tell us your story, man. Two minutes, sure. 20 minutes, whatever you got. Yeah. First and foremost, thank you guys for having me on. Um, I, I'm excited to kind of share a little bit of my journey and, and find out more about your all's journey within the process of this conversation. Um, my journey is a little bit different, I think, than most people who are in the performance and strength and conditioning world. And uh, I won't bore you, but I think um, I'll at least give you enough background to give you a sense of, of where, I, where I've taken things and why I've taken things the direction I have. Um, and with that being said, I want the listeners to understand I've been in you know performance enhancement work for 22 years, and I would honestly say there's not one part of my path that I wish hadn't happened. Okay, where you know uh, you know you have people who say, "Oh, I, I wasted time here. I wish I wouldn't have taken this. I wish I wouldn't have done that." Oh, you know, I did my internship, and my internship had nothing to do with what I do today. And what I do is I look at every part of my journey as it's it set me up to where I'm at today. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but just so you know where I'm at today, um, own and operate land of performance in Denver, Colorado. We have, uh, just under a 10,000 square foot facility where the, the facility text, you've seen it. It's, it's, it's nice, but it's not bells and whistles. Nice. Um, but really it's our infrastructure. It's our coaching makeup and our culture that we try to provide in here that really we think brings people in and creates a, a family type feel. So I have 15 coaches that I oversee and, and really teach methodology to and, and manage. So that's, the, the, that, that's where we're at today. Now let's take you back. Uh, I came out of uh, University of Northern Colorado with an exercise physiology degree and a minor in nutrition. Now, when I came out of school, I was in that, that process of looking for internship sites. And the it, it, and Tex, you you had hit hit on it a little bit before we even got started on the air. You said was performance training even around, um, you know, as a, an industry kind of silo, and it wasn't necessarily. Um, and so when I was coming out of school, it was one of those things like um, strength coach route wasn't even talked about that much, and it was really the. Um, uh, the performance side, there was nothing out there. And so I was looking at this. I was like, okay, I'm not coming out of this degree going on into personal training. Uh, you know, I think I could have done that without going this way. I could have yeah. done accreditation classes, courses, uh, certifications. And so what I did is I decided I was going to either go into physical therapy school um, or into PA school. Well, with that being said, I, I went ahead and took my internship to the route of um, cardiac and pulmonary rehab. And went through my entire internship, uh, enjoyed the process, learning about the process. And, and you know, I, I thought my next natural step was really going to be going into cardio, cardiac pulmonary rehab. And that's what I did. Did that for about six months post-internship. And it was pretty soon thereafter, I was like, whoa, like this is not for me. Um, and, the, and the reason being, for the most part, was it wasn't about the pay. The pay was minimal. But it wasn't about the pay. It was more about the fact that, that these people who their life depended on getting better, changing habits, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop eating like crap, go exercise, they didn't want to do it. it. And it was very, very hard to be around a population of people, for the most part, that weren't motivated by death um, or what was coming around the bend uh, to, change, to change their habits. 
So from there, I decided I was going to get into the personal training world. Started, you know, I was like, hey, I know there's some pretty good money that can be made here. You know, back in back in that day, it was like 90-10 splits. You know, you know, the trainer was making a 90-10 split. It was so wow. dumb. Yeah, but we were charging like 35 bucks an hour, right? So um, I, I went and put my resume in and soon thereafter started just working with GPs and just learning what personal training was about. My influence, I think we all have a bias when we go into this industry. And at that time, my bias was really more on the side of bodybuilding. You know, a lot of the information that you were getting was really bodybuilding in nature. It, it, it was like you're either bodybuilding or powerlifting or, or weightlifting were the three types of biases yeah. that people tended to have. And mine was more on the bodybuilding front and uh, started working with GPs and, and, you know, really not knowing what the hell I was doing, but then doing things that were mandated from the club and the facility. Here's our intake. Here's how we're going to screen. Here's how we're going to uh, evaluate and, and get people into the personal training side. I started doing that. And about uh, two months into that, I ran into a gentleman who was doing performance enhancement work. He was essentially a, a track, former track athlete who just had an amazing ability to connect and talk to people and tell stories and, you know, had knew enough, um, but he wasn't, you know, technically refined in what we do now in performance. Um, and so I started, I wanted to shadow him. You know, he had the likes of, of Barry Sanders, uh, Jerome Bettis, Willie Rofe, uh, you name it. He had the hall of fame cast training with him. And so I started to work out with him and I, I, you know, the whole thing we do in this industry where we volunteer when we spend time and we learn. And so I started spending a lot of time with him and it was a couple months into it where I really started to notice where the chink in his armor was. He was really good at connecting, but his chink in his armor was his consistency. Always running late. Hey, Lauren, start the warm up with the guys. Hey, Lauren, not going to be there. Run the workout for the guys. And I was like, oh, my God. And I could start seeing the frustration of the athletes start to build, start to build, start to build. And I started taking mental notes from that day. I was like, shoot, you know, if, if I can really understand this craft very, very well, if I can connect with people, and then if I can have consistency as my backbone, man, I'll be successful in this industry. So I kind of took those three pillars upon myself to then start seeking out and finding uh, mentors who really knew the craft. Going mm -hmm. after the guys like Lauren Seagrave and going after the uh, Dan Pass, the guys who just understood movement uh, from a linear model extremely well, but they could apply it a lot to multidirectional practices or at least some of the same um, overtones. So I got into that and, and started working with athletes, middle school, high school aged, and ran into a unique opportunity where I was able to start um, sitting down with agents and talking about pre-combine prep. Mm -hmm. my, first, my first class was 19 years ago. I had a, a first-round draft pick in it named Trey Thomas. Mm -hmm. I had, uh, yeah, I had Trey Thomas, Aaron Smith, um, Samari Roll. Like, I had some studs in that class. And, um, you know, I was like, wow, this stuff's easy. First round is every year. <laughs> but um, that's really kind of how I cut my teeth. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I, you know, I, I think I still argue we, we still don't know what we're doing. We're, we're trying to get better at figuring it out. But, um, you know, from, from the athletic club, club world, I actually got into management there too, where I was still training athletes, but I was getting into the managerial side. So this is where I talk about my, my, my path has led me to where I'm at today. Mm -hmm. And from a cardiopulmonary standpoint, like if something happens in my facility, man, I'm cool with an emergency situation because of my history. Mm -hmm. The management side, I had been thrown into the waters of management when I was 24, 25. And so because of that, everything has led me to where I'm at today at almost 44. Now, from the athletic club, I went out on and uh, 
opened up the velocity in Denver, Colorado. We were the sixth velocity in the, in the franchise. And I was fortunate enough to work with people who, who were mentors of mine, Lauren Seagrave, Stephen Pliss, and work with these coaches and really make curriculum and, and make this thing of performance um, more on a, um, I don't want to say scalable, but in a model that, that you can actually turn and, and actually make it a, a profitable business on the, um, the private sector side. From Velocity, you know, a, a number of those started to close over the years because mm-hmm. the, the, maybe the model was too big. And from there, I went into the orthopedic side. I had a great relationship with uh, Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Denver here. And I said, you know what? I said, the wave of the future of performance is going to be this. It's going to be who can best blend um, sports medicine and sports performance. And I said, I can be that bridge. So I started what was then Stedman Hawkins Sports Performance. We began in 800 square feet. It was me and one other coach. And I said, here's what we're going to do. We have a five-year plan, and our five-year plan is going to be simple. I'm going to start an internship program. I'm going to cherry-pick the best interns. I'm going to turn those interns into my coaches. And that's kind of where we are today. About a year and change ago, I bought out my partners from Stedman. Uh, They didn't quite have the same vision as I did on growth and where we were going. And I said, all right, guys. I said, I think the rubber hits the road. It's time for me to either walk from this project that we're all partnered in or I'm going to buy you out. You guys decide. Um, lo and behold, they allowed me to buy them out. And we, we then rebranded as Lando Performance, where today we're in a, the facility that you saw, Tex. Um, we went from the 800-square-foot facility to a 3,600 to now uh, just under 10,000. Mm-hmm. So I learned from my velocity issue, right? Velocity, we had 20,000 square feet. And in my head, I said, you know what? I think there's a performance model issue if you go above 10,000 square feet. Sure, and so. Sure. So even though the failure of a velocity facility was, was heartbreaking to me, I sure as hell learned from it and right. I'm moving on from it. So going back to what I said earlier before I got into this six minute rant, <laughs> but it really led me to the part of, of uh, you know, looking at it as everything is an opportunity to learn and grow and, and not to be cliche with it, but to really take it to heart and do it. Um, in text, I'll get to your point real quick and I'll touch on it. But when I was at the Stedman Hawkins orthopedic clinic, what I did is I actually developed their return to sport protocols and their ACL, um, the re- return to sport and the prevention protocols for lower extremity. But you know, the buzzwords always ACL. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I did I, that and we continue to do that, do that today. I believe that's where John worked on one of his knee operations was. Yeah. There. Yeah. So yeah. John, John, how many, he's had like a handful on each side, you know, blew his knee out a couple of times, both knees out. And I think that's one of the facilities that he worked at out of yeah you know what Stedman Hawkins they have a great name on the orthopedic side and I was just so fortunate to be a part of that that program for eight years and really I learned a ton about like um, early acute injuries and early acute post-surgical care and for there again it helped me sharpen my sword um, where I can have those conversations with any orthopedist now and talk to them about hey you know what stage of rehab is this person in now and you know uh, typically um, most physicians will hand somebody off to someone like myself at about week 16 to week 20 of post ACL I see most people about week eight or nine so I'm able to kind of understand what was done early on in the rehab side nice. which which is crucial just um, kind of as a, a- Khalid's a strength and conditioning coach. One of the issues I found was players would go to the ATC room, right? Away from the weight room, they get the rehab and then they, 
kind of get a pat on the butt and they just appear back. So they kind of fix this acute issue. Mm -hmm. But then there's this, this overarching, this chronic movement pattern issue where something going on that's just neglected, you know, just get as many athletes out of that room as quick as possible. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. And that's where I said the big, the biggest failure is, is that you might restore them to functional on a goniometer and what their ranges of motion are passively and actively. Um, but what, what does the functionality look like? Mm-hmm. And if you've seen a lot of the ACL, like return to sport protocols, they're, they're really a quantitative value. You know, it's, it's, Hey, you know, how much, how many reps of X, Y, Z did you do? How far did you jump single landed or single legged jump relative to the good leg or the uninvolved side? And they're never talking about the qualitative component of it. And really, Tex, that's that was really the, the big stapler take home message that I had um, at the play conference here was deceleration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, working on the art of deceleration, not just jump landing, but in locomotion. Right. And that's, you know, uh, on a smaller scale, because for the piece of the pie that works with the general population that listen to us there's not a lot of opportunity to do that given the makeup of a class session right and that's a lot of the stuff that we try to teach these guys in one of our seminars is you you can you can you just don't know right and uh, when you look at the function kind of the the holy trinity of alignment reduction and production there's a huge bias to what force production because that's what makes the numbers go up, you know, and then bigger numbers mean better abs or some shit like that. That feedback's (laughs) immediate. Yeah. Immediate feedback. Exactly. So, um, with that said, you know, as you're developing your coaches or your interns or your, you're convincing athletes perhaps that are coming out of a different training philosophy, um, you know, what's the art, what's the method? Do you inform, educate, convert? What's the deal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what the biggest thing – so if I get a new athlete coming in who's, who's been trained and say they've been a high performer for a long time and they're given sport or they've had a lot of success, you know, I bring them in and I say, you know, day one, you know, you know tell me your why. Why do, you, why, why do you want me? Like you want me to help you burn calories and stay in shape uh, from all the things that you do at night and, and on the weekend? Or do you truly want me to enhance your performance? I said, because here's what I feel I'm, I'm pretty good at, and that's kind of watching an athlete move and trying to help them become more efficient. And so I explain them what I do on the front end as well. And then from there, I say, you know, there's some rules with my training. Like it's not, we just don't go in and, and grip and rip. Like there's some rules to this. I'm not just going to say, oh, today we're sprinting and here's our cones, let's go. Like there's going to be some rules that I, I, I apply and those rules are truly here to help you. Now, I, I have athletes who buy in and I have athletes that don't. And I think, I think it's like anything. I have group settings uh, here as well. I do do a lot of work uh, one-on-one, but I also have small group and large group. And I think just like any of us, when we start to recognize like if an athlete is coachable or buying in, you, you give them everything you got. And when I start noticing an athlete who maybe isn't highly coachable, they're not highly bought in, I typically pull them aside and say, Hey, what's going on here? Like, is it me? Is it like, you don't like the way I look? Like, is it the words (laughs) that come out of my mouth? Like, what is it? And a lot of times they don't recognize that they're, they've, they've created this habit of, of not paying attention. Like we talk about intentional and attentional and they don't recognize that they're not doing that. And so I give them, you know, kind of a warning shot, like, Hey, I'm paying attention to you. I'm giving you cues. I'm asking you to do some things and you're not even listening or responding. Now, it's one thing if it's a, a neuromuscular issue where they're coming back from injury and they just can't do it. But if it's a pure lack of want to, 
I, I, this sounds really bad coming from a coach, but I'm going to be 100% honest. I'll quit talking to you. You know, if I've quit talking and queuing to you, it's probably not a good thing. And because I've got to put my emphasis into the person who is listening to me. And if I've got a group of 20, 30 athletes, I'm going to spend my time on the guys who actually want to listen to the cues and are here for the true coaching. You might hear for, for the, the physiological byproduct, but if you're here for the true coaching, I'm going to give you everything I've got. Um, and the other guys, I, I learned to kind of dial it back a little bit. And I think they, they kind of, I think they're a little bit miffed a little bit when I quit talking to them a little like, Oh, I must be doing things really right now. Cause Lauren's not cueing me. <laughs> no, you, you've, you've exhausted my patience to this point because I, I see you're not meeting me halfway. Got a great example. I have a, a kid. He came out of uh, University of Georgia. He was a safety, unbelievable safety. He was he was like a hybrid safety linebacker, mm -hmm. and he came in to train with me. And he was like a, always a bubble guy on uh, the Redskins roster. Um, yeah, he was always kind of a bubble guy, and he was one of these guys who'd come in. And he just was uncoachable. He kind of fit into that mold. And I would just shake my head. And everybody who comes into our sessions, you'll see the athletes who are highly coachable because of their movement uh, proficiency, and then you'll see the ones who who just it's in one ear out the other. But he was that kid in one ear out the other, whether it was multi-directional work, linear work, weight room work. It was his agenda, put his headphones on, put his, his uh, altitude mask on, and he would just go. I'm like, okay, uh, I wasn't getting through to you. And I, I saw him for two off seasons, and it was about the same kind of thing. So finally, he ends up, he gets injured. Oh, no. He gets injured um, with uh, Buffalo Bills. He had, a, he had a very nice season, but he ends up getting injured. That injury, he called me up. He says, I know you're the guy to get me back. And I said, I need to see what your level of buy-in is and your level of coachability. So he came in, and he was a 180-degree turn as far as athlete with that mentality. And we had to get him back from this. You know, It wasn't a serious injury, but it was something that could actually prevent him to being resigned. And um, he became the most coachable athlete at that point. So sometimes there's, there's, there's roadblocks or there's constraints that force an athlete to then flip that switch of being coachable. And he was the one case where it took an injury for him to actually not think he was the man anymore and go, shoot, I, I should actually, actually listen. Yeah, so, I, I don't think that's just one case. There's a lot of athletes out there like that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fortunate, right? You know, we're, we're here to help. And, and I think sometimes these athletes look at criticism or critiquing or suggestion as you're doing it wrong or you're not good enough and it's like no it's quite the opposite it's an opportunity as you discussed as yeah. a coach every every situation you are in whether it's managing or um just a, an intern sweeping floors it's still an opportunity to learn mm -hmm. just from an athlete's perspective every cue you receive every day you step into a weight room training practice that's an opportunity as well as long as you see it as yeah. Well. yeah absolutely so this is, this is pretty deep into the art of coaching. And uh, I know it took you a lot of reps to get there. And at the, at the Play Summit, you introduced a system perspective and a coaching perspective. I found it interesting that you put the system-based perspective before the coaching. Could you talk about why that was in the presentation and explain your system-based approach? Tex, well, is that a polite way to say you disagree with Mr. Landau? <laughs> no, it just perked my ears up. Oh, okay. Ears are perked, Lauren. <laughs> Careful. So, so anytime you give a presentation, right, you're, you're kind of giving people a 50-minute, 60-minute snapshot, snapshot 
into what you do. It's hard for me to lay down like a, a total philosophy uh, within the methods that I'm about to show. So the number one thing I'll do is I'll say this is a systems-based approach, but I also kind of retort on that as well and say, you know, it's not a systems-based approach. It's a strategy. And what the biggest thing I was really trying to come across in that um, presentation was, okay, we do all these great things for, for multi-directional work, you know, ladder drills, cone drills, um, whatever you want to call it. And people think that they're making somebody uh, more agile or, or quicker on the field. And it's my contention that it's really a, a system based on what we know about locomotion in all planes of motion. So if I can reduce it to some degree to becoming a master of linear locomotion and then the, the deceleration properties within that. And then if I can master like our, our, the planal aspect of frontal plane motion, which is your shuffles, your slides, your, your speed shuffles, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I can master deceleration within that. And then I can master my transitional or my transverse plane. So now I've just covered all three coordinate planes of motion of sagittal, frontal and transverse plane. If I can then master my transverse plane bridging to, because really what agility training is, it's, it's for the most part, it's, it's how do I get from a planal movement to a linear aspect? But I've got to have a transition that happens in the transverse plane. And once you start reducing things down to those planal movements that we can have or those, those key movements that tend to happen in those planes, then you start blending those together and the movement becomes flawless or, or seamless in transition where a lot of coaches will set up great agility drills, but they never actually show the, the athlete how to be more agile. They just get them through the obstacle course. Mm -hmm. Where here I'm trying to make a system based on what we know on movement and then the qualities of movement of deceleration and how we ultimately blend them. Because I'm a firm believer that our transverse plane motions, like our, our karaoke patterns and all that rotational BS, really is a bridge into uh, an acceleration from a change of direction. So if I'm doing a shuffle, and I put on the brakes, and I've got to dr drop and open up the hips, that's a rotational pattern. And the more I understand that rotational pattern and where it comes from, and then how to get back into acceleration, the athlete becomes more seamless. So I always talk about acceleration, or, or, or multi-directional work is simple. You have to ask yourself one question, how do I get back to acceleration? And if I can work on all those sub-qualities and understand what my acceleration mechanics are, I become a much more efficient athlete. You know, within, within our world, we, you know, we refer to it as chunking. And I guess in education, totally. scaffolding, yeah. um, uh, you know, letters become words, words, sentences. And, but, Boom. you know, you hammer those, those fundamentals in oh, uh, yeah. to be able to combine them effortlessly, seamlessly, right? Yeah. And, and that's what I do, you know, going back to the system. Like, it may be a system, but it really is a strategy. Mm -hmm. Like, to get to from point A to point C, like, the, the number one question I have to say is, where am I going next? And in sport, we never know. So I always talk about, you know, the more aware or the more, yeah, the more aware of your person you are by a couple different things. Where's my base of support relative to my center of mass? Are my feet narrow or my feet wide? Are my feet in an ideal position? Now, relative to my center of mass really determines what my weight distribution is. So I might, I might cut in a frontal plane and my foot spacing might be perfect, but my center of mass drifted over the outside foot now I'm unbalanced. Okay, well, I have a strategy to get out of that position now. Now, if I decelerate and I'm in the white, right weight distribution relative to where I go next, now I have a different movement strategy. So the biggest thing is I create this, this system, but I never give absolutes to the athlete. If you get caught here, you've got this step. If you get caught here, you've got this step. And it, it's basically a drop-down menu. 
And I never once tell the athlete where to, where, what step to do what, because they'll figure it out. It's like Steph Curry on the basketball court. Yeah. He can shoot the perimeter, you know, all day, but he can also hit shots everywhere that he doesn't even practice. Well, how mm -hmm. can he do that? He can do that by the repetition that he's had in, in the shots that he shoots the most. And his right. body just upregulates up and in, or the, the software upregulates and he goes into autopilot. Yeah. Everything's a subset of the fundamentals. You know 100%, what I mean? 100%. So 100%. Yeah. So starting to pick up now system first. And then I guess in, in Luke's terms, you could call the coaching perspective, the thin candy shell that each of us has the opportunity <laughs> to put on the chocolate filling assist a system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good. No, no, that's great. Um, so, so now let's let's get to kind of get into, I guess, the coaching perspective. You had many, many bullet points in one of the notes I wrote down is why teach calculus if you haven't mastered addition? So you had a lot of coaching gems in there. So I'd love to talk yeah. about anything uh, from your perspective off the top of your head or lessons sure. learned in your past. Well, I think a lot of it, you know, you, I think we started the podcast and, and you guys said, you know, coach with a lot of experience. And I always say co uh, experience equals lots of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Lots of mistakes made. Yeah, hopefully, um, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. If you if you think you're doing it all right, there's a problem. Um, but for me, that that bullet point really it, it jumped out at me. Probably first and foremost, I was at the combine one year, and uh, there was an offensive lineman. I remember he was coming out from University of Oklahoma. His name was Phil Lodehold, and he was a massive human being. I think he was like six eight, three fifty, three sixty. And I, this is the time when I actually was in the dome. This was the old RCA dome, and I actually had credentials, and I went in and watched. Um, and, and I had to kind of hide, like, because uh, every team's like, what team are you a part of? I'm like, ah, don't, don't mind me. I'm going to sit by myself over here. Um, but I was sitting there and um, watching the Phil Lodeholt. He was warming up before the 40. And I'm watching him, and I see this guy who's 6'8", 360, 355, and he's doing fast leg drills, okay? Track fast leg drills. And I'm like, and he wasn't doing them well. I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I don't know anything about the coaching that he had received and the, everything, but I'm like, how much time did you spend on that for a guy who's really his job is, you know, one, one the acceleration is going to be his key component, but is that your best tool in the toolbox to put on a guy like that? Or were we just trying to get sexy and give him something that looks track-like to get more buy-in? I don't know. But it was like, to me, that's what really started to hit me. Like, what are we giving the athletes drills for? Like, to me, I know our time with our athletes is truly limited. I need shit that transfers. Mm -hmm. I need shit that transfers, not shit that's Fast sexy. Fast and effectively. Yes. Fa it, it, and universally for most yeah, athletes, right? 100%. I'm all for coordination tasks. I'm all for that. But to give somebody a coordination task such as that, you know, when you have a six to eight week window to run a 40, I don't know if that's best spent time. Um, so, you know, neither here nor there. I don't know really what his training was. You know, maybe that was a drill he had from a high school track days and he wanted to bring it out before he ran the 40. But to me, it was just, it was ironic that somebody clearly was spending time with the offensive lineman. You look at the KPIs of what he does and, you know, is that where I want to be spending my time? I don't know. So it goes back to, like, are we doing drills for drill's sake? Or are we doing drills that truly have transfer? And if it's, if, if it's out of the wheelhouse from a, a technical and proficiency, proficiency aspect and your landmark of time of what you're getting them ready for doesn't allow you to really influence that skill, why introduce it? 
So that, that's really what stemmed with that. But we see it in everywhere. We see it in, in the functional training world of, you know, let's make everything more unstable and let's do everything single footed and one arm. Yeah. It's like, really? Like there's only a certain amount of neurological energy that I can put forth into this exercise. And the more neuro- neurological energy I put in or functionality, I'm going to lose out on the strength component. So right. what am I going after? Um, you have to ask yourself, what am I truly going after in said exercise? Is it a circus trick or do I want to make somebody strong? So, you know, I think that's where that really stems from Tex. I'm, you know, this industry is full of it, whether it's, you know, the, the, the core work, the trunk work, the activation exercise, like everybody's just trying to be so damn sexy or so damn, um, inventive. Inventive is a, is a word that happens in our industry. And I think it happens on the movement side. It happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Keep Did it you to invent the f- that word? Uh, inventive I, I don't know I, I don't know if it's a scrabble word would i get points on that uh we'll, we'll in my book you. yeah yeah to qualm something uh, seinfeld no no good text i recall gotta get a medical dictionary um so i love this phrase what am i going after and yeah. we uh we are a principle-based methodology so we always love to go back to the principle and one of our driving principles is simply said principle specific Boom. adaptation to impose demands so what kind of mistakes are you seeing coaches apply to, I guess, a younger generation of athletes that, that oh, may man. benefit kind yeah. of the, the pros pro, but. Mm-hmm. Or what has a Lauren Lando, Lando oh. done, you know, that he's learned from his mistakes. I know. Oh my God. Right. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. There are countless of the mistakes I've made, like inappropriate loading strategies, inappropriate set rep schemes, inappropriate uh, pairings of exercises, inappropriate exercises that for the person um so many things that i can say i've made a mistake on you know i I truly can down the down the course i say there's some things i see a lot in our industry now uh, i see it with my own coaches is inappropriate strategies like a potentiation strategy with a a a novice or intermediate athlete i'm like sure you Mm -hmm. know like we look at those things and i think that becomes really the hotbed everybody's trying to you know potentiate this and let's go to squat to to this sprint or squat to this jump and Mm -hmm. You know, if that person doesn't have a, a good training age, if that person doesn't have a good saturation of training, you know, you're just putting fatigue on fatigue. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like people are using like great methods, but they don't know where the methods maybe fit. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've been guilty of that myself at times. And there's always a recalibration as a coach in our evolution for sure. And I think that's, that's the parody right there, Lauren, is okay. It may be well-intended. Right. But if you don't have the capacity to yeah. to recalibrate, I like that term. Uh, then you're, I don't know. You need to, you know, go go find a mentor, right? Uh, take this, listen to this podcast, call Lauren, and go over there and beg and plead to work at his facility, see how he does it. But uh, right, sorry to cut you off, but keep on. No, going. no, you're good. No, and, and I I completely agree with that. And, and by no means am, am I flawless in my methods. I mean, I make mistakes daily. You know, it's usually at the end of the day, you're like, God, you know was that really the best choice of exercise? Was that the best pairing? Was that the best sequence? You know, could the rest interval been a little bit longer? I mean, if, if you're not doing that as a coach daily then, and, and you think everything was perfect, man, you know, I, I think you're selling yourself as a, selling yourself short as a coach in your development. But um, I, I think the same thing that we said about the athlete earlier, like if there's criticism, if there's um, any type of cueing or if there's any type of suggestion, the athlete tends to take a defensive um, stance to it sometimes. Well, I think the coaching world's the same way. Mm-hmm. The coaching oh, world time, yeah. is, is very much the same way. And, uh, so because of that, you know, I, you see coaches justify what they do, um, because they're, they're more, 
they'd rather justify being wrong than they would in taking um, some good constructive criticism. And I think that's the market of a young coach. I think we have a lot of, I think that's the other thing. We have a, an information saturation right now where kids are well-read. I, I get in more freaking young coaches and interns who are freaking well-read and they can regurgitate this and that, but you ask them to to coach and they can't coach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if they're watching a session, they can sure as hell tell you what, what you're doing wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's they like can tell you what you're doing wrong. And that's say, what I'm good at. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what you're doing wrong. It's like, why didn't you fucking tell me, asshole? No, uh, <laughs> just kidding. And then you give the keys to the Ferrari to them and say, okay, you give this Ferrari a spin, yeah. and then yeah. then that athlete's on their watch. And it's and amazing get, what they can't. They get tense. Oh, they can't. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what they can't see anymore. Sure, sure. So I think you know it's always one of those things. Like uh, you know, I think there's an evolution as a coach to where. Every, every coach young, you want credibility and you want credibility by being right or knowing. Mm -hmm. And I think all too many times practitioners don't want to say, I don't know. I, I say that one all the time. I don't know. And depends is probably my number one answers with interns. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, what about this athlete? Depends. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, because I think as you get older, you understand how many variables that are that, that go into uh, performance enhancement. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, we talk a lot about, Tex and I, you know, athlete life cycle. And it's something I'm really fascinated with. But Tex, you know, maybe I've either blocked it out or don't remember. Those are the, usually the two things I do. But you have a lot of interns flowing through and a, a huge, seemingly huge staff. And it's been part of your strategy to take coaches through a development cycle, right? Mm -hmm. What Do you have a generic or uh, I guess kind of a directional life cycle of a coach uh, as you develop them. Like you said, you know, the first step is being able or not the first step, but there's a phase of being able to identify what's going wrong with the training or what could be done better. Let's say yeah. uh, areas for improvement. But yeah. then when the athletes on their clock, all of a sudden that, that vision blurs, yeah. right? And uh, they go into this tunnel vision. They can't see that other periphery. Is that a life cycle phase or is that a, a coaching ability phase? Yeah, that's funny, right? I, I think it's both. I think that, uh, you know, I was down at Altus about five months ago and we got into a good discussion about, you know, coaching pedagogy is, is really, you know, something that's never touched on with these kids coming out of school. You know, they, they know their anatomy, their biomechanics, their physics. They can regurgitate, you know, any research. Um, but you ask them how to coach and how to communicate and how to cue and all those different things. And it's usually the last thing they learn. So mm -hmm. I think it's twofold. I think that there's if so much. If at all, yeah. If at all. And I think so much is put up onto the front end on the science side. And then on the back end, you know, we always say, well, you know, it's experience. Experience gives you the intuition. And so I do think it's a double-edged sword where I think that, that you don't know what you don't know kind of thing mm -hmm. because your, 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 um, your pool of saturation hasn't been large enough to start to see commonalities of certain athletes or certain movements or, or to see, you know, cues that help common faults. And so I think early on they want to deduce everything back to, okay, we got to FMS you because you can't block your knee on uh, you know, a sprint cycle. Well, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, making this match that it's about, 
understanding in bigger context what the art of coaching is and how to get your words across to them. Maybe it's bad cueing. Maybe it's bad coaching. Maybe it's the wrong cueing that you're giving the athlete. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you're not make, making that connection. So I think the life cycle is simply this. I think early on the athletes come out with a great amount of knowledge and they're very ego driven and you can't tell them they're doing anything wrong. And then about, a, about five to eight years into the career, they're like, I don't know a damn thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not a good coach because you start to realize all the things you've missed all these years because you were so worried about being right that you weren't paying attention. You weren't making an athlete centered and, and really pulling yourself back and saying, I don't know. Let me refer out. That's probably the number one thing I do is refer out to with my athletes these days mm -hmm. instead of trying to be the, the end all be all for them. And as a young coach practitioner, I think you, you find that as a sign of weakness if you're referring out. Mm -hmm. Well, I've found that my athletes love it when I refer out because they trust me even more. Yeah. They know I, I understand where my strengths are. So, again, I think it's an evolution, man. I really yeah, do. Yeah. I think there's an awareness that the, that the coach has to have, but it's an evolution. Yeah, and, you know, uh, again, just comparing, contrasting athlete life cycle, coaching life cycle, um, we – there are – with – properly time training stimulus, you can really start to accelerate the athlete's life cycle, right? Misapplied training stimulus may expand that in terms of trying to hit certain, uh, uh, I like the, the term you used, like a training saturation. So certainly there's frequency of training, et cetera, but correct movement selection, sequencing, not, I shouldn't say correct, but optimal, you know, there's a term in there I'm missing uh, to accelerate that life cycle to, so that we can start to really maximize training effect after the athlete is trained enough to get better, right? right. Uh, is there, in your experience developing these guys, is there um, any tips or tricks for some young coaches that are listening? They say, hey, I, eight years, fuck. You know, I don't have that time. I wanted to get it now because that's what everything, you know, that's how long everything takes. But yeah, not necessarily a, a magic pill or flip the switch, but what is the mindset that you, you know, or mindset factors that an athlete or coach, I'm sorry, coach should have to maybe accelerate that life cycle a little bit and compress the time frame to reach enlightenment, you know? Yeah. Can you think of anything? Yeah. You know what? I think it comes back to, you know, what I tell all my good interns uh, or I tell my interns when they come in day one, I say, um, you know, you have two ears, one mouth, you know, <laughs> listen more, talk less. Um, you know, I, I try to really keep my, my young coaches and my interns from queuing too much, uh, you know, save your words, save your words and just watch, you know, watch and see, is there a tendency of a, a, a poor movement pattern or poor execution? Or is this, is that that person's new movement strategy based on health history? You don't know, but you've got to watch enough of it to let them tell you, let their movements tell you a story. So I tell the, the, the young coaches, like, it's hard because you want to share how much you know. But, again, as, as I've gotten older, I coach a lot less than I ever have. And it doesn't mean I'm not paying attention. I'm paying attention probably even more. But I'm sitting there saying, what's the key issue that I want to correct? And is it limiting? Because I think the two things we have to look at as a coach's standpoint when we're trying to overcue, I think it's like a game of where's Waldo, where everybody's trying to find out what is wrong that nobody's freaking paying attention to what's actually happening right. And what I mean by that is if you watch movement, say we're watching somebody move linearly, is there anything that you see that throws off rhythm and tempo? Is there anything that creates pain? Is there anything that creates like a, 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 just a hitch in their movement that would then relate back to movement and tempo? So you have to ask yourself that. Like if they may have a, a limiting 
range or they may have these suboptimal mechanics, but is it actually impeding performance? You have to ask yourself that. And my number one thing is I go to the athlete and I say, do you have pain? Are you asymptomatic? Do you have pain with X, Y, Z? No, never had an injury, never had this, never had that. And you start asking those questions and saying, okay, maybe this is just how this person is. And I shouldn't try to fix them. Because one thing we know about I, my, a lot of my population as athletes is everybody is, is, is a, compensa a compensatory vehicle. And these athletes create compensations to a lot of times do their task well. Mm -hmm. So if we try to balance this athlete, if we try to overcure, correct this athlete, can we make, can we take what is, makes them special away? And so I tell those coaches to really, you know, really think critically and think big picture. Don't think so myopic by, I see X, Y, Z, their knees diving in. There's knees. Yeah. If it's, is it dangerous? Is it symptomatic? You have to ask yourself those things. Yeah. There's a part of, oh. there's a part of their movement signature. Sorry. No, a big, um, a big growing moment for me as a coach is working at a, a D one football for the first time. And those are the greatest athletes that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And there was one guy who would walk heel over heel kind of, to, uh, mm -hmm. pit, uh, not pigeon toed, duck, duck footed heel over heel. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, oh, we got to do something about this. So I approached the coach, just what I was seeing. And he's like, this is the fastest guy on the team. And right? I was like, yeah, but coach. Yeah. And he's like, this is the fastest guy on the team. <laughs> and it took me, yeah. I guess, a while to understand that even like years down the line and, uh, kind of watching this guy still play on Sundays. It, right. He found the most optimal way to run and we're talking four three speed he was a kick returner punt returner now he's an nfl cornerback so it took me a long time to realize yeah it, it, yeah I, it, I would have to move perfect and i still won't touch that but this guy can still find a water will find its level with this individual uh, i love it I, that's a great great story that that's so damn true i just had that conversation today with uh intern who was watching one of my athletes and said oh are you you concerned with this athlete's xyz you know and i said well, going back to what I said, she's the fastest player on ice in the world, and she's asymptomatic. She's doing pretty good. She's doing pretty good. Now, and does your does your opinion change then on a, uh, a novice athlete? Uh, yes, because I think there's uh, – and that's a good point. I think my opinion changes because I think there's so much of the, of the training elements that they haven't mastered. Mm -hmm. And so if you see in, uh, you know, a poor movement quality, poor movement, they just maybe don't know how to move more optimally. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, who jump into the whole um, dynamic systems theory and, you know, just let athletes move and let them react to the environment and react to this. And I'm like, no, they have to understand context of what is more optimal. And mm -hmm. that's why we have, you know, learning to train stages um, and the saturation of training of doing the right fundamentals and doing the right skills. So then that way, once they've learned these more optimal mechanics, now that you go apply, now you go apply. Um, the reactive component to it um, in, in the open environment. Mm -hmm. But if you try to make it more anarchy based, it's going to get a bunch of shitty movement patterns and people reacting to them. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of our listeners, you know, I suspect they're, you know, they're working more so with uh, those that we can impact and influence. So, yeah. you know, when you just want to make it clear for some of these guys and gals listening, you got a kid who's 14 years old, oh. you know, who walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck. You got, you know, you got work to do because yeah. they're for the majority of people, the proverbial bell curve, you know, there's 
I don't want to say universal, but universal theme to alignment and speed ability, yep. right? Yep. And that's what the training should resemble inside and outside of that linear sprinting, change of direction, whether there's a barbell on your back or, you know, you're skilling and drilling. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm a firm believer. Like we, we drill the hell out of our fundamentals here with one, all of our athletes, but really those young ones, like we will try to, you know, if they've got a, a suboptimal positioning, they're duck footed that young age. Well, they could be because they're, they're weak intrinsics of the foot and they go into extreme pronation and then the forefoot uh, abducts. So instead where this guy maybe found a, a, a movement strategy that worked for him and he was genetically gifted where these, these other athletes, you know, maybe they're just intrinsically so weak and they're yep. unaware of, of loading the foot dorsiflexion before ground contact that allow that, that create those poor movement patterns that, that I don't think if you're, if you're not coaching that and you're not trying to change that, it's a for sure death trap. Yeah. Um, which goes on back the, to the movement side. Which goes back to, I don't know. So, you know, yeah. one of your coaches, hey, should this guy be duck-footed? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you, know what the, you know what the funny thing is? And a lot of the times, that's the damn funny thing. You'll see somebody who's more duck-footed, you know, when they walk that forefoot's abducted. But if you actually pay attention, they could actually be retro or antiverted with their femurs. And so, so you say, mm -hmm. hey, let's get your toes straight ahead on your squat. And now you've just forced them to further internally rotate the femur. And now they've got hip impingement issues. Sure. So, so it's one of those damn things like – you better know what the hell you're talking about and, and what you're truly trying to change. Right. So you, in, uh, in your presentation, you introduced your activity pyramid. And I thought this was fascinating how you, we, um, Luke and I were taking that perspective we mentioned earlier of alignment, force reduction, force production. But this is kind of a different approach and you say it almost better than we do. Um, so can you kind of give the, our listeners a visual? I'll put the image in uh, the show notes, but could you give oh, them sweet. a visual of uh, your activity pyramid and I guess especially that keystone of deceleration? Yep. So, yeah, when you look at the, uh, the pyramid itself, the pyramid is, is broken down into four other triangles, pyramids, whatever you want to call it. And kind of like I talked, touched on earlier, like the top pyramid is linear. And it's linear locomotion and whatever that, that means for you as a coach. It could be acceleration, transitional movements, or I'm sorry, uh, transition from acceleration to top end speed and then top end speed. And it can even be backpedal, right? It can have even that backpedal influence. And we can even have some curvilinear paths to it as well, where it's like base, base path running, things like that. But at the end of the day, the main, the main tenet of the locomotion is a linear model. And then uh, that'd be the top pyramid. And then the bottom one, uh, bottom left corner is going to be frontal plane. You know, what I talked about earlier, your shuffles, your power shuffles, your speed shuffles, um, whatever you want to call that. And then the bottom right corner is going to be transitional, transverse plane movements, tapiocas, cariocas, different variations of those to work on really the, the synchronization or the timing of a, a push leg and a jab leg um, as I'm turning the hips. And then the middle, the middle, uh, triangle it's actually inverted it's inverted so the the base is up at the top and it's deceleration and basically the reason why i put that one in there is because deceleration quality has to touch all those other qualities and if you understand that the skill of deceleration or if you master the skill of all those other qualities i just mentioned and then you master deceleration and all those planes of movement with all those skills you win Mm -hmm. You win. You make an athlete who is in better position. And I always talk about with sports, we want to do all the right things from the wrong position. Mm -hmm. How the hell do I know what is right if I haven't grooved it in a chaotic free environment? So that goes back to our closed systematic drills. 
and then saying, hey, you know, and then when you get caught in this position, pull out this bag of tricks. And then, so we start to integrate it in time. So it goes from very low and chaotic uh, nature to very high and reactive. And is there a, do you sequence it specifically or is it concurrent in terms of the, that pyramid? It, uh, it's concurrent, 100% yep. concurrent. Now, one thing I won't do with uh, like my, uh, my developmental athletes is I will not have them do um, uh, an acceleration and top end speed mechanics in the same day early on because it's confusing. It's confusing if I'm saying, hey, this is a piston based approach and acceleration and then I get into uh, top end speed, which is cyclical. Well, most athletes' biggest flaw when they come out of change of direction is they want to go right into cyclical. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, really the goal of being faster in agility work is how do I get back to acceleration mechanics? Mm -hmm. And most athletes botch that one. And I'm going to tell you, most high performers on Saturday and Sundays, they're the ones botching it as well. Pay it, watch them. Watch them when they come out of a break. They're cyclical in nature, and they're usually slipping and sliding. Yeah. And that slipping and sliding that I see when it's, when it's, um, when it's not on cut, when, when there's no contact, that's being out of position. Mm -hmm. it's two things. It's being out of position, going back to where the base of support is relative to the center of mass and understanding which leg is my locomotor. In most of my change of direction drills, I have a brake leg and I have a gas leg. Mm -hmm. And it's really this game of leveraging the levers about the center of mass. Where mm -hmm. do I put the feet relative to the hips that really determines where I go next? Right. Now, do you have, uh, you know, in terms of each parameter here in the pyramid, is, are there assessments associated with each or is it just, okay, go fast forward, uh, you know, or yeah, do you have you assessment know, drills? Yeah, we have assessment drills early on in the process. We, we do our typical generic, like we're going to vert, we're going to broad, we're going to uh, pro agility. I love the pro agility as assessment. You want to know why? As much bastardization as that drill gets, here's why I love it. Because every athlete coming into me has done that drill multiple times. Mm -hmm. So I get an idea of how well you think you know your body, how well you truly know your body by a drill that you've seen a number of times. And it's actually alarming the mm -hmm. amount of elite athletes that I get from the division one level that, that don't understand, you know, how to decelerate, how to reaccelerate out of a cut. And to me, it's like, it's not like the sport specific action of the five ten five. Well, this has no relevance because you never do that on the field. It's not about that. Right. It's about how quickly can I decelerate and accel accelerate, decelerate and reaccelerate. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And to me, that comes down to how well you understand positions, position and angles. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, now that I think about my question, I probably fast think that one text. This is an argument text and I will forever have. Fast, but, um, fast thinking versus slow thinking. I guess it doesn't matter because you're, it doesn't fucking matter what the assessment tells you, does it? it, it does because well, you want to go unless well, you, you're looking for balance in each one of these qu uh, quadrants. I guess are you looking yeah. for balance and ability, or is it just like it, the training doesn't matter? We're getting you. We're going linear. We're working on deceleration. We're working mm -hmm. on transition. We're oh. working on frontal plane. I, I see what you're saying. If I look at each sub quality by itself. Yeah, you know, to me, it's, it's education. It's all, I look at everything from uh, the weight room, the warm-up, the movement skills. It's all motor skill acquisition. And so I don't look at it as this proficiency. It's like, you know, how do we upregulate the software? How do we make it better as we get stronger? How do we make it better as we get more um, – uh, how, how do we make it better once it's learned with reactive nature? You know, so to me, it's like almost every day is a, an assessment with it or an evaluation oh, yeah, sure, with sure. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm interested in combine drills versus preparation. So Boom. a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the stuff we're talking about with the activity pyramid is on field preparation. 
Yep. But at the same time, you get guys that come in for combine drills. So yeah. uh, kind of, I guess, talk to us about your approach. Are you also <laughs> preparing the athletes for the field while the combine? Or are you to wait till that's done and then get on-field practice preparation? So here's the beautiful part. So when I get my guys ready for the 5-10-5 and the L drill, these closed drills that were like, oh, these are boring, these are this. I tell them early on, like, if you can learn my rationale and my, my, my philosophy for doing this, I will make you a, a, a faster on-field player because, again, I'm teaching them a, a strategy text. I'm not teaching them a system of how to do this drill. I'm teaching you a strategy that's going to hold long-term into how you play your position. So everything that I talked about with the weight distributions, the levers, the leverage, and, and the breaking gas, even though I'm getting you ready for a closed drill, it's helping you on your on-field drills as well. Now, I bring out coaches as well with the on-field component, and I'll, I'll get in there and coach as well, but I actually bring in – uh, former mentors who have played in the game. Now, where I have to be careful is a lot of those guys who played in the game, they really don't know what made them successful. Mm -hmm. They do have an understanding of what the coaches and the scouts have an eye for and what they want to see in a certain drill. They want to see hip bend. They want to see the fact that you're not a waist bender. They mm -hmm. want to see that you've got good ankle mobility, that you've got great balance. But the number one thing that drives me absolutely batshit crazy is watching the combine and seeing kids who can't hold their footing on air. They can't hold their footing on air. And that tells me that wherever they went and trained, somebody taught them the dance steps to the 5-10-5 and the L drill, just like I did. But nobody showed them where they had context or carryover into the on-field preparation. Because there's no way somebody went and trained somewhere and learned the tenets of those drills, but now they can't hold their footing on, the, on a drill that's open. Or, or not even, Those drills aren't even open. Those are still closed drills because you know yeah. the drill's going in. Mm -hmm. They might be more reactive in nature to do it a large degree, and there might be more change of direction elements. But at the end of the day, you have an idea what you're doing. The problem is somebody didn't teach them how to truly properly locomote. And, and I, you know, not to pat myself on the back, I can say this, is our guys, when they go into their on-field work, they're butter, man. They don't lose yeah. footing. They hold position. Because mm -hmm. we taught them how this shit actually transfers over from a closed drill to what then would be more of an open-ish drill. Yeah, highly respect that. So is there a way for us to, I guess, implement a more kind of open-loop test that can really – paint the picture of the athletes better for the teams? Yeah, right. Uh, that, that's the million-dollar question. You know, I, I've always said, if you really want to see who's a nice athlete, have them play one-on-one -on -one against each other. Like yeah, one-on-one -on -one hoops. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little, little hoops. But, but I think, you know, take it further than that. And, you know, I'm sure they're going to come up with some sort of reactive, you know, one of these reactive companies is going to have them do some sort of reactive agility trill. And, and I think those are, are going to be a closer staple yeah, a to how closer, somebody right. truly, truly moves. But, um, you know, unless you're going to get out there, out there and do, you know, on-field one-on-ones, which they'll never do because of liability issues, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, that, that, and at the end of the day, that's why they do all the, the, the camps, or I'm sorry, not the camps, but the bowl games and the practices, because that gives them a real good assessment of that person right in front of them on that one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one scenario. So Are, are scouts you're, you're, allowed at um, practices or are they just at, games? I don't know. They, they're, they're allowed at the practices for the, the uh, bowl games. Okay. So the, the one thing that I'll say this about the NFL combine, a lot of people bag on it, dude, here's why I love it. We have year, we have at least three decades of data on the combine. And as much as people want to change the test to make them more relevant, you've got such a saturation of, of values and numbers that do make it an easier predictor to sit there and say, Hey, here's what our vertical jump numbers look like for guys who have success at this position for this many years. And so, you know, you can't argue numbers over the, over the years. Now mm -hmm. the, the problem that we're running into is like um, a 40 is not a 40 anymore. Okay. 
Meaning that what, what guys were running five years ago has changed because the technology has changed that they're using to capture it with. So that becomes the hard one, right? Because now you'll hear Mike Mayock go, ah, oh, these guys are slower than the class before. No, the technology's gotten better and, and it's harder to beat the, the, the laser timers now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the technology's gotten better, so guys are theoretically slower, but that's not necessarily the case when we watch Sundays. We know mm-hmm. the guys are faster. So I think what's happened is the, the uh, technology and the equipment's gotten better and nobody's accounting for that. They're just saying, oh, you know, Chris Johnson ran this or Deion Sanders ran that. No doubt those guys are outliers and they were freaks and they probably were ridiculously fast. But if you look at the numbers, I think, um, you know, five years ago you had, you know, I think 12 to 15 guys go sub, sub 4-4. That mm-hmm. doesn't happen anymore. You don't have that many guys. You'll have a, a couple and then you'll have the freaks like Jonathan Ross who – who then go for two, but yeah. I think, I think that the combine has been good because numbers are numbers. So are the, uh, I hear just the coaches are looking for the first 10 yards in the 40. Is this true? I, I think it matters on position. You know, I, I think that they want to see your perimeter guys, your, your wide receivers and your, your uh, DBs that they've got long speed that can carry. I think that your offensive linemen, your defensive linemen, they want to see that 10, 20 uh, timeline. And I think your running backs, they want to see tens and twenties and, I think the 40 is important, but I think the 10 and 20s are more of a wheelhouse for the running back. So right. I think it comes down to position. You know, at the end of the day, if a linebacker runs a, a 4 4 8 40, that guy's going to get a lot of love. Mm-hmm. You know, the kid, the kid that just ran that from, uh, I think he was uh, Temple or uh, he was from Temple. And he, he moved himself into the first round by running a 4 4 8. Yeah, so, the walk on. Yeah, great story. Yeah. So regardless if uh, they're looking at their 10 or 20, if you, if you run a pop in 40, uh, they'll take note regardless of the position. So I, I want to stay with uh, kind of open loop. So uh, one thing I, I guess I'd love to do in training is just kind of get creative and find different ways to test the open loop for athletes, Yeah. So whether it being tag or just kind of different, um, just kind of reactive drills like that. So what kind of stuff do you apply to your athletes in your amazing 10,000 foot facility? Yeah, in my amazing 10,000 foot. You know what? I think the biggest thing, we will pull out some light sensors and things like that, but you got to be careful the light sensors because they, they create a, a movement bias as well. And what I mean by that is if you put up the light sensors and say they're on like a hurdle, you know, the athlete is going to step and reach to, to break the beam to be faster. But essentially, think about what I said earlier what my philosophy was. Where is my center mass relative to my base of support? I just violated that rule. I just Mm -hmm. violated that rule and actually watch the athlete that does that and they come out every cut so damn slow. So what we do is we change our rules here. Okay, we'll put up the light sensors, but you've got to break it with your chest. You know, you got to break the beam with your chest so you're not getting out of a a position, a good position of locomotion. We will do – I do a lot of partner reactive work. Man, Mm -hmm. I love it. Uh, You know, two partners up, you know, they're going to shuffle, 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 and then boom, they accelerate uh, uh, opposition of each other. It's not like follow each other. It's like when this guy breaks, I break my way. So it's just creating that stimulus. I'm, I'm big on creating that, that open stimulus for these guys, whether it's clap, snap, uh, person, partner, whatever they're reacting on. I love to change it up. Yeah. One, uh, I guess one thing when we're teaching coaches about the fundamentals of change direction, we get away from the touch in the hand with a line. So now right. I have a reason to come back with because it changes the base of support from the center of mass. There 100%. 100%. And that's just it. And that's the funny thing. Um, you know, that's why you have to leverage certain positions. Well, when you God, here's one I get in the five ten five all the time, you know, you being at the D one level, when, 
you know, a coach maybe watches their kids do a five ten five. They say, don't get so close, you know, don't get your feet too close to the line because you want to be, you know, you want to take less steps or you don't want to travel as far as that line. So what do they have to do, Tex, to get that line? Center mass. They say, fuck. Now you just shifted all your way to the outside leg. Now I don't have great leverage to get out, and now I'm going to be slower. Mm-hmm. But try to convince some kid who's been taught by his coach that that's, that's I want to reach for that line. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. my whole thing is like where's your center mass relative it and where's your weight distribution work with that yeah work with that like clearly don't overshoot it but my god don't play the other end of the spectrum so right right it's about teaching these kids really movement and having them understand like what efficient locomotion is and to me it's like watching a good sprinter like you see the timing and rhythm right in front of you change of directions the same way you see good clean range of motion and the coaches always say when they see good clean range of motion they go oh that guy's got great hips what the fuck does that even mean? He's got great <laughs> hips. He looked good in a skirt. He looked good in a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> but, my, but what does that mean? He's got great hips. No, he just transitioned better. Right, right. So it wasn't a mobility issue. It was an awareness issue. Totally. Yeah. So let's, let's stick with kids' development. Uh, I know well, you talked about uh, McCaffrey. How long have you been working with him? Do you – I see some amazing change of direction drills on Instagram. Back, Man, back when you were working with him before Instagram, what were you doing? You know what? Shit, the fundamentals. Um, and we did it today. Same damn fundamentals. It was, today was a top-end speed day for us. Christian and I started working together when he was 10. So hmm. we started working together when he was 10. I've worked with all his brothers. And the one thing that I, I will say that Christian did that was probably the best thing he ever did was he was a three-sport athlete. Yeah. You know, he played, he played football, basketball, and track. And so because of that, you know, it, it, it helps in the development of raising that ceiling. But the best part was in between seasons and, and out of season, he was in, you know, regurgitating the fundamental stuff that we do here, not the calculus, but the addition subtraction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just hammered on that stuff. And, and Christian is, is the epitome of, of a, a high performer. He would call me after games at Stanford or, or text me, I, I should say, and say, coach, what did you see? What do you think? Mm-hmm. he was always up for suggestion. It didn't matter if he was in this Heisman year or not. He was always asking me, you know, what, was there something I could do better? What did you see? What do you think? He'll, he'll do that today. You know, today he goes, coach, what'd you see? What'd you think of my movement and quality? Mm-hmm. He's always wants to upregulate and get better. And that's why he's the high performer that he is. So let's, now, so for a three sport athlete, you know, high caliber, mid caliber, whatever, you know, that doesn't leave a lot of time right. you know, in between season, off season and balancing the I guess the high school collegiate required training camp uh so how do you you know I guess is it just that's you get the most bang out of that addition subtraction so that's what you're going to hammer yeah 100 percent. we're going to hammer that but in the stages the early stages of development like we we dialed those in so tightly that when he would come back to me in those transition between seasons we just you know hey lug nuts were a little loose let's freaking tighten them back up Mm -hmm. and so you just get back on those skills and drills and I'm a firm believer of this guys like my my job I'm I'm teaching athletes general locomotion skills. I am not teaching you how to be a better running back, better defensive back, better, you know, base runner. I'm teaching you general locomotion skills and then you go apply to your sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just creating and that, a- that's where I think that's where I think coaches um, coaches miss the boat in our sport. Uh, I'm sorry, in our industry is they don't know their role. Mm-hmm. Know your damn role. Right, right. You know, we and we generalize that as athleticism. Right. Uh, yeah. Don't worry about making a better athlete because that's task, that's task specific, but yep. the universal performance trait, which is, you know, a blending of many things is athleticism. Yeah. Right. And uh, yep. that's, that's really the, the catalyst of performance is athleticism. 
and you hit it on the head. Here's what I tell the athletes. I said, when you come to me, I'm working on your vehicle. I'm working on the vehicle. And I said, when I hand you off to your skills coach, they're going to work on the quality of the driver. Mm-hmm. And that's my job. That's, give, that's great. Give the skills coach a gift wrap athlete saying this guy is going to move a lot better for whatever the hell you need to do, whatever you need him to do. Mm-hmm. And I've got the Von Millers of the world coming in. Von Miller's already a stud with or without me, but we're just, <laughs> tight, we're just trying to tighten up some general athletic skills. You teach him those dance moves? Uh, you know what? He needs to teach me those dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm gonna, this might be a, a tangent because we um, – I'm a firm believer – and I read on your, uh, on your site, you have a segment like train like a professional athlete, right? And I'm sure yeah. maybe I'm wrong, Lauren, but that's for just kind of the regular guy, right? Or gal who's looking to get in shape. And when you say, or you're talking to that general population, they yeah. say, oh, I want to get in shape. What, what are they looking for? And you, you termed it physiological benefit or byproducts of training, right? Right. Which is a fancy way to say it. They want to look good naked, right? Dude, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> and uh, and there, there's inarguably... I don't know, plenty of fucking ways to get people to lean out and appear muscular, right? I mean, yeah. starvation is one option. I know this for a fact. I just did it for fucking 12 weeks, right? And my training, guess what my ability did, you know? But uh, plummeted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sidebars, we did, we'd had like a little weight loss challenge with a buddy and it didn't work out well. I mean, <laughs> I, the goal I on, it worked out great. The goal was fine. Text I, would, I would have just cut off an appendage. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thought crossed my mind. But um, I'm here to win. <laughs> I got, I kind of got four quadrants here, right? Okay. Um, and I'm just curious how you would interrelate these fitness, athleticism, the physiological byproduct that people are looking for, and then ratcheting up performance, right? I feel like they're all kind of interrelated in the sense, but my ultimate, you know, well, I won't tell you my bias. I'll let you go. And I think we're probably going to parallel here but that's fitness athleticism kind of looking good naked and then performance understand that one's a goal your abilities um you know how would you relate that you know if i'm understanding the question i think for me like i look at like uh uh, athletics and performance are, are tied, tied so inter, intertwined, you know, and the way I look at it is if you work on the, you know, kind of like train like a pro, um, you know, if you work on the athleticism and the performance, like the fitness will come, you know, whether that's your, your, uh, your capacity to do work or the caloric expenditure that you have. And so I think it's funny that you say that because I think it was like a marketing tool, right. That, that we use on the website. People know we have a lot of pro athletes like in here training and the best part about it is they come in and go, holy shit, I'm doing the same warm-up as Von Miller. I'm doing the same warm-up as Christian McCaffrey. So, you know, I guess it's like kind of a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Like, oh, there I was. Oh, the Christian McCaffrey footwork drill that went viral on um, social media. I was doing it the other day. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where that comes from. But if I'm looking at, like, those, like, it, like what's my priority? Like, majority of people that come into us are, are weekend warriors of some sort. And so we, we teach, we still train the athleticism and performance and then the fitness becomes the byproduct of that. Right. Uh, the look good naked aspect becomes a byproduct of that. Yeah. Now, when people train for fitness, they don't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily develop the athletic qualities that, that we're trying to instill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I guess this is just, you know, I'll, I'll just do it. Do it. Like a guy who's going to be like, yeah, totally. And I'll feel better about myself. But, you know, for anyone listening to this, and I'm not saying trash, like start from the drawing board. But what I think people miss, and when we talk about, because we, we're in tight with CrossFit coaches and CrossFit gyms, that's where we run a lot of our seminars. Mm-hmm. These are the audiences we 
we sell our proverbial methodology to. So the marketing tool, right? And um, I mean, my, my, my contention is this, the methods that guys like you, Lauren, impose to increase performance are the most prudent in the sense that they're the safest because you cannot fuck up Von Miller for a season. Right. Um, they are, are the quickest in terms of eliciting a response because you don't have time to take two years to do something to get a quick training response, right? Yeah. And, uh, and at the very crux of this is something that we, we simply put as form follows function. So you're yeah. training for it to be a high performer. Your physique will resemble that, right? Yeah. And it's just that simple. And it's, you know, people, we were doing a corporate wellness gig for these guys. Uh, and they're like, oh, you know, you guys train professional athletes. You're going to be over-programming for us. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand all the gimmicky bullshit that you probably are falling for, or you think works. That is where the risk may not be worth the reward. There are fundamental things that we do to ensure safety, correct locomotion and, and maximize training response. And it's the same shit that people do with the, the cream of the crop athletes because they're very expensive and you can't break them. So, um, but I just, I, 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 People struggle to connect with that message, and I was just curious if maybe you had cracked the code. Yeah, you know, I, 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 think, we, I think we do a pretty good job here of, of saying, you know, here's really how the professional athletes should train. You know, it comes back to two things I talked about. Uh, I want to make sure anything that I'm doing is transferable, it is, is most transferable for the time I have and what I'm trying to get them ready for. Because everything for my athletes is set up on a timeline. Like, when does this athlete leave? When do they have to compete? So everything's set up by a timeline. So because of that, you may have to ratchet up some things um, but those high performers who maybe have a good training or a really good training edge who have been with me for a while, they're going to upregulate to my stressor that I provide on them relatively quickly. However, it's still all fundamental tools. I just might use the methods a little bit different. It might be a fundamental squat followed into a, a, a potentiation-based exercises. That's another fundamental exercise that now we're using this strategy to evoke a different response. So that's the damn funny thing is, right? I'm using two fundamental tasks, but I'm using a, an, an advanced strategy to get something out of it. And I think it goes back to what we talk about with variation. The elites need more variation. And, and the variation doesn't have to be just crazy sexy. It's just like a different, different stimulation mm-hmm. where we look at the, the, you know, the more the fitness enthusiast um, or the younger athlete. I mean, we could sit there and squat them three by 10 for freaking ever. And they're going to see results. You know, the, the pro athletes are using the same fundamentals. They just might be using them in a different strategy to evoke a different response where, you know, it's the same exercise that we do with the novice, the young training age. Um, and they're, they're sitting there doing the same things. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that, you know, you're swinging sledgehammers and you're, you know, you're running with tires and you're, you know, doing all these tire flips and, Clearly, that's a fine strategy, and people can do that. That's freaking fine. But I think when you actually look down to the bulk, really what the, the big boulders are of what people are doing, they're hopefully going back to what we talked about earlier, that you're using your recipe from um, you know, the Olympic weightlifting, from powerlifting, from bodybuilding sequences, and you're using that for your weight room strategies. You're using the template of those three to fill out your, 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 your resistance strategies, and then hopefully you're using good locomotion tactics um, from a fundamental standpoint, uh, linear deceleration, change of direction um, to complement that. So one thing that I've always done too, and I've always, I I talked about it at length, like my philosophies really come down to efficiency and uh, what transfers. And to me, there's nothing more transferable than movement. 
So let's make people great movement, you know, proficiency machines. And then let's use the weight room as our icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. Where right. I, a lot of strength coaches are quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, we make you big and strong. You are faster. And, and that's actually most likely false. You know, I, I've seen so many kids lose their athleticism because they had to put on this false weight or they had to, you know, really. And don't get me wrong. I love the weight room. We're in the weight room four days a week with my elites. But you have to understand where there's a diminishing returns on what you're putting into it. And so you have to be smart with your programming. That's where I don't think a lot of people are really doing is they're not, they're not blending their movement and their movement strategies and the resistance strategies to really have this outward appearance of what performance is. Brilliantly put. And, you know, that's the second half of kind of our evaluation of a program. And, you know, you, you'll probably agree if it looks if it looks like lift some heavy weights and run really fast you're you're and, and play your sport and play your sport and look to look good doing it that's like an outfit type thing you know you want to wear the right clothes no look good doing it like good movement you're yep. uh, you're in a good spot right 100 percent. couldn't agree more so but lauren hey anything you want uh, you want people to check out um do you have any more speaking engagements coming up you know, I've got quite a few coming up, a uh, couple of uh, overseas, um, going to um, Ireland here in about a week uh, to present for another play conference. And then I've got the UK SCA in uh, England in August and the ASCA in um, Australia in November and then Shanghai in November after that. So uh, a couple fun ones coming up, that's for sure. Oh, national conference at the NSCA too in July. Ah, NSCA, I'm doing the pre-con. Four hours of that triangular approach on movement. I am showing it live with my coaching staff. Oh wow! Right. Yeah. So yeah, we should have this out in time to, I guess, pump that up and push people that way. And what city? What city is the national conference in? It's in Las Vegas. Ooh. Yep. I'll I'm see gonna you. go to that one. Yep. Vegas, baby. Vegas. Maybe. Vegas. Uh, so you're getting all the work in the first four hours of the conference. I get it. <laughs> That's yeah. a strategy. Pro man, I'm shutting it down. Uh, what about social? Where do you want people to look for you on social? You know what? Just uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram are at Lauren Lando. So pretty simple, straightforward. We also have Lando Performance on Twitter and um, uh, Instagram as well. So uh, hit us up, and uh, if you're ever in town, come on by and, and watch what we what we try to do here. You know, we're not perfect. Uh, we're still, you know, figuring it out, but uh, we're having fun doing it. Awesome talk. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, take care. All right. Guys, appreciate it. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Lauren on all of social media. Again, those handles are at Lauren Landau and at Landau Performance. After all of his international travels, Lauren will be back in Las Vegas for the National Conference of the NSCA. That's July 12th through 15th. If you're interested, the link will be in our show notes. And mother of God, is this tune giving you PTSD? That's likely because you attended last year's Power Athlete Symposium. Well, guess what, folks? It is back. Mark your calendars for December 8th through 10th and tell your sigo that you got to see a guy about a horse in Austin, Texas. If you're a noob, here is what you can expect. Uh, amazing guest speakers, tons of practical and hands-on diagnostics, this song definitely on repeat, and some mild but legal hazing. 
To register for the event, head to powerathletehq.com backslash events. We hope to see you there. And of course, until next time, bye.